So, morning, everyone. Great to see you. Been a good day already, hasn't it? So, um, so I'm Martin. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I preached two weeks ago for my first time. So, if you were here then and have come back, thank you very much. It's a real, it's a real encouragement. <laughs> um, if you weren't, don't worry. Uh, Tom was here last week. Now, for those of you, um, Tom taught on a life of celebration last week. And I, I know he won't mind me saying that he wasn't that enthusiastic about Christmas. Now, to quote him, I think this is a fair quote, he said, if he had his way, he would put the Christmas tree up last thing on Christmas Eve, and he would take it down, pretty much Boxing Day afternoon, job done, Christmas over, happy days. So, so I thought, well, hang on a minute, I know we're still in November, but we're starting a new season, we're kind of a week ahead of, of Advent, but this time next month, it's going to be Christmas Eve. Some of you will be rushing around the shops, getting that last minute present because you kind of haven't been quite as organised as you promised yourself you would be. I will definitely be there. So this week I thought, you know, I'll up the ante a bit. Um, I won't go full on Christmas jumper, but I've done, I've done kind of a modest thing here. Um, now anyway, Christmas, it tends to be a time of tradition. So those traditions which have been handed down through the generations, some of those traditions that we may have started ourselves, and we, we have three traditions in our family at Christmas time. Um, the first one has been handed down through generations of my family, and that's on Christmas Day at half past one. No matter where you are or who you're with, we raise a glass to absent friends. So whether they're celebrating somewhere else with other family or whether they're celebrating Jesus in heaven, we'll raise a toast, and that's something we do every Christmas Day. The second one, this is a tradition that Deborah and I set up when we bought our first house together, and we can do Christmas how we want it. It's a really simple one. No Brussels sprouts. Full stop. Nope. Not not allowed in the house, not allowed on the Christmas table. That's it. Awesome. Best tradition ever. And then... (laughs) Wait, there's more. (laughs) So, I didn't say Marmite. Come on, it's not bad. Um, So, the the last, the the third tradition, that's one that I set up... um, set up probably four or five years ago, and that was, it's turned into tradition now, so every year I buy a new Christmas jumper, and I'm getting quite a collection, and I'm quite excited about that. And uh, for those that are lucky enough to work with me, Paul, um, the last week of work before Christmas, I get to wear one every single day, and that is quite exciting. Uh, So anyway, today I thought, well, we're not quite Advent, we're definitely not December, I can't go full on Christmas parker jumper, I'll do a a subtle t-shirt instead, so so I hope that's okay. Uh, are we nearly there yet? Yeah, cool. So today we are starting a new series, and as we move towards uh, the start of Advent and anticipate the thr- thrill of hope, which is the coming of Jesus Christ. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a bit of time, we're going to take a breath, we're going to catch ourselves, and we're going to focus on some of the key characters and some of the key themes of the Christmas story, and see how they fit with God's arrival on earth in human form through his Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure this is a story that most of us have heard many times over, but my hope and my prayer that this Advent we'll be able to open ourselves up a little bit more, we'll be able to still our hearts, we'll be able to listen to God, and we'll be able to listen to what he has to say to us through the characters and the themes. So as we quiet our hearts and minds from what is often a very busy, busy time of year, let's open them up to the Holy Spirit 
He's been with us this morning already. So we can remind ourselves of the thrill of hope that's marked by the arrival of Jesus. So before we start, let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the gift of your son who you sent for us at that very first Christmas time. As we sit here today, Lord, will you send your spirit to sit alongside us, to be with us, and to remind us of the thrill of hope that we can experience during the time of Advent, birth of Jesus. Father, fill our hearts with expectation and keep us searching for your Son so that we can be deeper rooted into you, our Heavenly Father, as we go wider across the communities we're part of. Help us to spend time with your Son to become more like him so we can do more of the things that Jesus did. Lord, may you use these words to speak to us this morning and let anything not of you just fall away. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Okay, so today we are going to look at the Magi, the wise men, the three kings. We're going to look at them in the context of the wrong messengers. See, this t-shirt now makes sense, right? All good? Sweet. Okay, so... um, Get your Bibles out if you have them, because over the next few weeks we're going to follow um, the book of Matthew, mainly chapters 1 and 2. And if you're not familiar with the book of Matthew, it's one of the four Gospels. So it's one of the four Gospels that documents the life of Jesus. Now, each of the Gospels tell the same story, but they have a slightly different lens that they look them through. So depending on the author that wrote them and the audience that they were, they were designed for. Now, Matthew, um, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector, and he became one of Jesus' disciples. And in many ways, the book of Matthew represents that bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what do I mean by that? Well, Matthew does this in a couple of ways. Um, first three, through genealogy, he gives a historical context of the genealogy of Jesus. And then secondly, he does that in terms of focusing on um, the prophecies and the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament that were made real or made true um, when Jesus arrived. So Matthew's main audience, that was the Jewish community. um, And he wrote this book to show them or to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah. He's the eternal king that they've been waiting for to deliver them from oppression from the Romans. And he starts that book with a long line of generational context, and that's the evidence that um, helps the Jews to understand that the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus, is the descendant both of King David and of Abraham. Now, I'm not going to go through that long list of genealogy. Uh, I couldn't if I wanted to. Um, If you see some of the names in there, you'd recognize I had no chance. So we're going to swiftly go through that. And I just want to mention Abraham and David because they were very significant Old Testament figures for the Jewish community. Abraham, he was the father of all the Jews. And King David was um, arguably their most successful king. So he ruled over the Jewish people for 40 years. And he established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel over 3,000 years ago. So in the opening opening 16 verses, Matthew is proving that lineage of Jesus, who is called Christ. He's proven that lineage to both Abraham and to David. And that's important because it signifies one of the many prophecies that are fulfilled through the arrival of the Messiah, through the arrival of Christ. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
But for now, we're going to jump forward um, to Matthew 2, uh, verses 1 to 12. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we'll have the, the words behind me. And when I say jump forward, I do mean jump forward, because we're effectively skipping out the whole angel, Mary, stable, birth piece, the Christmas story, and we're going straight to the arrival of the Magi. So um, I'm hoping in one of the next weeks we might get the first bit of the story. So it's a bit of a time hop, but here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what was the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, they, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay. So what do we know about the Magi? Now, interestingly, Matthew is the only gospel to mention these guys. He's the only one. So pretty much everything we learn about the Magi is from this passage. And there's not a lot in there, to be honest. But let's look at what we do know. So we do know they come from the East. The Bible tells us that much. And the theory is that they came from Babylon, which is um, in the East, and it's known today, modern day, as Iraq. Now, Babylon was a very important nation. Uh, about 600 years before Christ's arrival, the Babylonians successfully conquered Israel and took over Israel. And as part of the spoils of war, they collected up a bunch of stuff and a few people and took them back with them to Babylon. Now, one of those people they took back was a bright young lad called Daniel. And Daniel was quite a special young man. He was uh, bright, was clever, but he also had a gift. He had a gift from God, of prophecy. Now, why is that important, you might ask? Well, Daniel, whilst he's hanging out in Babylon, pretty much minding his own business, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king of the time, and he had a few restless nights, nights where he'd be tormented by dreams. And these, he believed these dreams were from God. That's what he thought. So he went to his royal court, and his royal court of magicians, astrologers, and wise men, these were the Magi, the people known as the Magi. And he asked them, you know, tell me, what does this dream mean? Well, we read that in Daniel chapter 2, verses 2. So the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers to tell them what he had dreamed. The problem was, these Magi, no matter how wise they were, how clever they were, none of them had the prophetic gift to hear from God. So they weren't able to interpret this dream for the king. They didn't have a chance. 
In fact, in Daniel 8, verse 10, it says, there is, they, they go back to Nebuchadnezzar the king and they say this. They say, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, as they do not live amongst men. Now, the king's not too happy about this. And in the olden days, when kings aren't happy, that normally means someone's going to get killed. So he does what all good kings would do in that time. And he says, right, that's it. Magi, you're out. Uh, I need some new wise men. I'm going to kill a lot of you. And that's when Daniel steps in. So Daniel intercedes for the Magi. And he says, um, before you do that, let me help. And as, um, as we know, he's a prophet. God speaks to Daniel. He gives him the interpretation of the dream. Daniel passes that on to the king. The Magi survive. And Nebuchadnezzar says to um, Daniel in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 47, he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. That's the king saying that. And that was the God that the Israelites knew through the Old Testament. And that's the same God that we know today. So to cut a very long story short, what happens? Well, Daniel gets rewarded, and he's given the opportunity to rule over the whole province of Babylon. And he was placed in charge of the Magi, of the wise men. But why is that important? Well, well it's important because you see what's happening here. 600 years before Jesus arrives, Daniel is able to influence the Magi with his knowledge of God, with his knowledge of the Scriptures, and that knowledge starts to become part of the knowledge of the Magi. They'd already accumulated great wisdom about the stars, about astrology. And this adds, on top of that, the knowledge of God. So, that's just about all we know, I think, about the Magi. The rest is pretty much conjecture and interpretation. Um, we don't know how many there were. There were most certainly more than three, regardless of what it says in my no expenses spared eBay special theologically inaccurate t-shirt. Um, we know that they were wise. We know that. We know they studied the stars. We know that. We know they had an understanding of Jewish scripture. We know that. We know they're in Iraq in the east. We know that. Um, we know they were part of the king's court, which gave them the ability to influence and give advice. As a result of that, they were highly respected. And whilst they weren't kings, we know that they were often referred to as the kingmakers. They were the people that would seek out and anoint the most powerful rulers of the time. So when this new star was seen on the first Christmas, they were ready and they were set to travel the 900-ish odd miles, which took about three or four months as they went to seek out the king of kings. Okay, so let's change gear a little bit here. Who remembers the uh, Back to the Future film series? Yeah, amazing, huh? How many good Sunday afternoons watching those? We, we love them in our house. <laughs> anyway, whoever doesn't remember Back to, the, Back to the Future 2, that was set in 1985, right? Doc, who's the crazy man professor, and his sidekick, the really enthusiastic Marty, um, they jumped forward 30 years to 2015. As part of that, that gave the producers a bit of a problem. They tried to make some predictions about what would 2015 look like, what would the world looked like in 30 years' time. So they had a quite a good success, actually. They got about a dozen things right. They made some predictions that there would be wearable technology, that there would be video calls, that there would be uh, tablet computers. Can you believe that? 
self-tying shoelaces, yes, they do exist. Flying cars, they do exist as well. Now, that's not too bad, is it? But I guess the reality is a lot of those things were already in progress, right? We already had TVs, we already had telephones, so they're natural progression steps. So whilst they're good predictions that come true, they're, they're kind of a continuation. Not too bad, though. But let's compare that with um, some of the predictions in the Old Testament that came true through the birth and life of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to be honest at this point, I did not go through the whole of the Old Testament underlining every single prophecy and prediction that was there. Um, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, Slack. I didn't honestly have the time, but I am led to believe, through certain authority, uh, that there are about 300 predictions in the Old Testament that come true through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that, for me, is quite an interesting fact. I like facts. But that gets even more interesting when we look through that through the lens of the chief priests and the teachers of the law that we just read about in this passage. So what do we know about the chief priests and the teachers of the law? Well, these folk, these teachers, they were effectively the most highly prized academics of the time. They knew the Torah inside out. They knew the Old Testament inside out. They could quote it. They knew it intimately. And they also upsaw the... Um, they, they oversaw the upholding of the law that resulted from the key teachings of that. They had their heads down in the scriptures. They had their heads down in the, in the scrolls. They were drawing on their content to make the rules, to make judgments over other people, to uh, advise the rulers of the time. And in, in this case, that was, that was King Herod. They would have been intimately aware of all of the predictions and prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to the coming of the Messiah, that pointed to the, the King of Kings. In fact, even, we read it now, just when Herod asked them, where would, where would Christ, where would the Messiah be born? In verse 5, they say, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For that is what the prophet has written. They're quoting there the prophet Micah, um, who said that the king of kings, the Messiah, would come to shepherd all of the people of Israel, and he would come from Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah was due to, due to come from. And it wasn't even that far away from where they were based. It's not like it was a long trip for them. So eventually when the Magi leave the chief priests and the teachers of the law and Herod, and they, they go off in this relentless pursuit of Jesus, the new king, what would you expect the chief priests and the teachers of the law to do? Would they get up? Would they go with them? Would they follow the Magi, recognizing the importance of the Magi and their journey to seek out this new king, the baby boy that's been promised to them, they've studied for their whole life, to recognize, to understand. Do they do that? No. They stay put, head down, busy, doing the important work of making laws, of studying, of interpreting scripture. Okay, so let's move on. What do we know about Herod? Well, we know he was the uh, Roman leader of Judea. That's not an easy job. Uh, Jerusalem at the time, it was the kind of the easternmost output, outpost of the Roman Empire. So um, that's as far as their control extended to, effectively. And that made it the front line. And wherever you get a front line, um, it can be quite a turbulent place. There's lots of potential for unrest, for invasion or disruption. So that meant Herod was constantly on edge. So when the Magi arrived at his palace and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod, he was disturbed, and rightly so. 
You see, the Magi that had arrived on his doorstep were not the kind of people that Herod would have expected to bring this kind of message. They were the wrong people, they were the wrong race, they were the wrong religion, and they were the wrong culture. And they were proclaiming for all the Jews that their long-awaited king had arrived. He was there. And it was a king not in the form of a fierce warrior with a huge army and a massive sword, but it was a tiny baby hanging out somewhere under a star in Bethlehem. Herod greeted the Magi as the wrong messages, and he certainly did not like the message. But we know Herod was a politician. What do we know about politicians? Well, sometimes they hedge their bets a little bit. So he doesn't dismiss this completely out of hand. He wants to cover all his, his bases because he's in, a, he's in a vulnerable political position. So he, he asked the Magi, hey, listen guys, when you've met this king, come back, tell me where you find him, so I too can go and worship the baby. <laughs> yeah, right. Do we believe that? No, of course we don't. No, it turns out that it's another example of a sneaky, cheeky politician telling the people one thing when he's got secret plans to do something completely different. Okay, so let's move on. What do we know about the Magi's gifts? Well, no, no, I'll, I'll let me carry on. So the, the Magi, they continue with their search. They, they get to Bethlehem, um, and under the, under the star they've been following to find Jesus, they find Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, not in a stable, but in a house. And what's the first thing they do? They bow down and they worship. We sang that this morning. It's the first thing they do. They bow down. These guys have been traveling for months through the dust, through the heat, the desert. The first thing they do when they arrive, when they recognize that they are there, they've met Jesus, they've seen the King of Kings, they bow down and they worship. And part of, part of the Magi's worship is to give the gifts they've been carrying to, um, to Jesus. Now, these gifts were significant, not just, because, not just because of their value, they would have had significant value, but also because of um, the spiritual significance that um, they would have re represented. So let's, let's have a very quick look at that. Um, the three gifts we know were gold. That represents kingship. So that's a gift to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, the God on earth. Sorry, the King of Kings. Frankincense. This was an incense, um, and that represented deity. What do you mean by deity? Well, it's divine status. Um, and that recognizes Jesus as God on earth. And then the third gift, this was myrrh. Now, myrrh was an anointing or an embalming oil, um, and that represents Jesus' death, his ultimate death and sacrifice for each one of us on the cross. So these gifts, they foretell Jesus' time on earth, and in their own way, they are a prediction of the life that he's going to lead. Now, I'd say that's absolutely the right message. So these guys were absolutely the right messengers to bring that. Now, we're not, we're not quite sure how old Jesus was when the Magi arrived. We know it could have been anything between sort of four months and maybe up to 18 months um, by the time the Magi, Magi arrived. Um, but they didn't hang around much long after that. You see, the Magi, they were warned in a dream not to go back and see Herod. So they went off by another route and went home a different way. And uh, just after they left, then Joseph um, received knowledge from an angel through a dream 
And he was warned to take Mary and Jesus and to leave Bethlehem. And they went over to exile in Egypt until Herod's reign finished. That was a good move. You see, Herod, by this point, was getting even more anxious. Uh, The Magi hadn't come back to tell him where this baby, where this king was. So all he knows at this point, that there's a boy somewhere living in Bethlehem or around Bethlehem who's between the age of four, maybe up to 18 months old. And Herod's enraged. So what do enraged kings do? They order someone to be killed. But Herod takes that one step further and he says, right, I want you to slaughter all of the boys under the age of two. Why did he do that? He did that in an an attempt to protect his reign, to protect his political power, and to stop him being usurped by a small baby. Okay, so we've looked at a few things here. We've looked at the significance of Matthew. Uh, why it was written and who it was written for and the fulfillment of some of the prophecies that came true in the arrival of Jesus. We've looked at the Magi, they're the kingmakers. From the East, they're the wrong religion, the wrong race, the wrong culture, but they are searching relentlessly for the new king. We've looked at the chief priests and the teachers of the law, heads down in the scripture. And we've looked at Herod's rule by iron fist holding on to his position of political power at all and every cost. And then we've looked at the the gifts of the Magi that have been brought to Jesus in worship for telling the importance of his life and his death. But what does that mean for us sitting here today, 2,000 and something odd years later, maybe taking a sneaky peek at the clock to think how much longer until we get to have this bring and share lunch? Well, about four minutes. So... um, so well, I'm going I'm to suggest thing, three things to think about in the quiet times that we have over the course of the next week. Um, three kind of takeaways. The first one, heads up versus heads down. Are we going through life with our heads down like the chief priests? Or are we going through life with our heads up like the magi? Are we focused on the day-to-day so much that we're missing the presence and the hope of Jesus in our lives? Do we have our head in the books rather than looking up at the stars to see Jesus in the intricate details in our lives and the lives of those around us? Do we have the head knowledge of the scriptures but not the heart knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for each one of us, what he's doing for us every single day? Are we hiding from him or are we seeking him? Now, I don't know if you've had had the chance to do or help out with an Alpha course, but there is something special about an Alpha course. Um, There's something refreshingly real about people on an Alpha course who are there seeking and searching for the answers to questions about life that they just can't get a grasp of without the truth of Jesus. You see, when we search, we ask questions of ourselves and we ask questions of God, which deepen our understanding of him of who God is, but it also deepens our relationship with Jesus and our experience of him through the Holy Spirit. I wonder, have you stopped seeking? If you have, what would it mean this Advent to search again afresh for that depth of relationship with Jesus, to seek him out relentlessly, to pursue him, to receive that thrill of hope that he brings? So secondly, what what are our motivation? What drives us every single day? Is it to protect a position we hold in life? 
maybe at work, in church, with our families, with our friends. They need to be seen a certain way, maybe to be seen as strong or to be clever and have good ideas or to drive a cool car or, or whatever it needs to be. Or are we trying to be a bit more like Jesus every day? Jesus who had the divine authority given to him by God that he would only do the things that he saw his father do. We're trying to replicate, what are we trying to replicate in our lives? Are we trying to replicate protection or power like Herod? Or are we trying to pursue Jesus and the authority given to us by God through his spirit to do the things that Jesus did? And the third thing, finally, giving versus taking. So how do we live our lives? Are we radiators or are we drains to the people around us? Do we give out the warmth and love of Jesus or do we drain time and energy from people we spend time with? Do we take like Herod took? Maybe not in the way that he took the lives of all those, all those babies, but do we sit in the disappointment of unmet expectations when things haven't gone our way or people haven't done what we think we need them to do? Or do we come to Jesus like the Magi? in worship, with gifts? Do we give out the love of Jesus in the same way that he's poured out his love into our lives? And how he gave the ultimate gift of his life for us on the cross so that we can be set free from the mistakes that we've made in our lives? Maybe this Christmas we need to think about the gifts that we give. Maybe we can take a a leaf out of the Magi's book and think about the significance of the gifts that we give this season to the people that we love. Now, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the gifts under the tree, but what about the gift of friendship? What about the gift of time or a phone call or a visit to someone that's on your heart? Maybe it's the gift of hospitality to someone who's lonely or the gift of encouragement to someone who's struggling or even pre- more precious still, maybe it could be the knowledge of Jesus, the gift of the knowledge of Jesus to someone who is eagerly seeking and searching. So for Abel, why don't you you stand with me?